note to the listeners, this is Anne Markham Bailey, the producer and host of Present Tense. In just a few minutes, you'll hear the third full episode of our series, The Fight for Alabama's Last Wild Places, featuring the citizen eco-warriors who formed a movement to save the Bankhead National Forest. These interviews are part of the origin story for the nonprofit Wild South, and will form an audio archive. If you like the episode, check out the full series on Spotify and on Apple Podcast. If you'd follow us or subscribe, you'll be notified when new episodes launch each Monday. Leaving a review is helpful so that other people can learn about the series. You can donate to Present Tense, and that would be great. You can do that at greenbucketpress.com backslash hashtag present dash tense. Your support will help us to record more important stories like the interviews in this series. To learn more about the fight for Alabama's last wild places, you can do that at greenbucketpress.com backslash present dash tense dash podcast. I've put up links and photographs. You can also go to wildsouth.org to learn more about their work. Together, we can fight for, protect, and save our last wild places. And now to the episode. Ricky Butch Walker is the lifelong native son of the Warrior Mountains. He descends from Cherokee, Creek, and Celtic Scots-Irish people who migrated into the hills and coves of the mountainous region of North Alabama some 250 years ago. He, as was his father, is a member of the Ochota Cherokee tribe of Alabama. His Indian name is Fishbird, in honor of his fifth, fourth, and third great-grandmothers, Catherine Kingfisher, Experience Fish, and Elizabeth Bird. They were some of his Indian ancestors. Butch was born and raised in the shadow of the Warrior Mountains, where he was taught by his grandpa the old ways and the way of the wild before starting school. He squirrel hunted on Brushy Mountain, trapped in Sugar Camp Hollow, searched for ginseng in Indian Tomb Hollow, and fished in West Flint Creek. He walked with his grandparents on old Indian trails, including Black Warrior's Path, Sipsy Trail, Hightown Path, and many others. He explored the deep canyons, rolling hills, steep bluff lines, and vast hollows containing beautiful waterfalls where he would stand in the spray to cool off on a hot day. In 1966, because of the love of his mountainous homeland, Butch became an advocate 
to stop the clear-cutting of old-growth woodlands that he roamed and hunted as a youngster. Butch worked to help establish the Sipsi Wilderness Area, which was dedicated in 1975, and wrote weekly articles about the forest called Bankhead Back Trails for the Moulton Advertiser. In 1992, Butch teamed up with Lamar Marshall and helped begin the Bankhead Monitor to fight the clear-cutting and destructive practices by the U.S. Forest Service taking place in the sacred Indian Tomb Hollow. Indian Tomb, Kinlock Rock Shelter, and the High Town Path Historic Districts were eventually designated and protected by the U.S. Forest Service. The Bankhead Monitor became Wild Alabama and later Wild South. Butch served as the chairman of the board of directors until Wild South merged with the Southern Appalachian Biodiversity Project in 2006. As I was at a meeting one time at the Lawrence County High School Auditorium, and Mr. James Ramey, who was a forest ranger, was speaking. And he said, uh, he made a statement that just nearly slapped me in the face. And he said, uh, there's no historic sites in the forest. In Bankhead Forest, there's no historical sites. And so I raised an issue with him. And of course it aggravated him because I did. I could see it didn't, set too well with him <laughs> and I said in my mind I'm going to try to document some historical stuff in Bankhead Forest and the only way I can do it is talk to the oldest people that are there and so I started a project and that was that was what that's what initiated the Warrior Mountains Folklore book James Ramey All right. and his statement <laughs> at the Lawrence County High School Auditorium when he was giving a talk about the forest because uh, I'm I am not one to hide my feelings or, you know, I get excited about certain things and so uh, it got nearly to the point of somebody asking me to step outside and I was about willing to do that and uh, that's the reason I never have liked to be in a position where uh, I have to, because I don't, I, don't, I don't like a lot of crap from people, you know. Cause I get angry and I might lose my temper. So, people like Lamar is more suited to handle tense situations than I am because I know how explosive I can be sometimes, and it's not healthy for me or the other person either one. Cause I, you know, but that's just the way I am, and I can't help that. That's who I am, and that's what I'm. When we were advocating for the second part of the wilderness, you know, Charles Borden and I were very outspoken advocates for the wilderness. And uh, I'll never forget going out to the Forest Service at Black Warrior Work Center there one day. Now this is for the expansion of the wilderness this in the was 1980s, for the second, right? This was the second thing that got passed finally in 1989, I think is when it was actually was set aside as a Sipsy Wilderness Edition. The old timers at that time, most of them were some of them were dead and some of them were just not up for the fight. Uh, Jim Manasco was still there and he was still willing to, but he had been through it. He had, man, you couldn't ask that guy to done any more because he spent three days a week in the, in the wilderness in that area uh, 
when he and Miss Ruth and the kids, he'd take them out there, and it's been three days every week carrying people, showing people, and trying to promote the first ship's wilderness. But I remember going to the Forest Work Center up there, and uh, it was a it was very tense and very adversarial because we had there's probably a dozen loggers there. Marshall Frost was one of them that started the Swuffle organization. I don't know if you've heard of Swuffle. It was a society for the wise use of forest, something or other. I, you can look up Swuffle. And Bill Buston was there. He was uh, one of the people that had, he had been a ranger. Bill Buston, I remember Bill Buston as a forest ranger. He was there before James Ramey. And we were fighting and people says, hey, the, you weren't fighting the Forest Service. I, I take issue with that. I mean, they were putting us in some adversarial condition, positions and conditions. I mean, when you're facing a bunch of loggers and you're trying to make your point and state your case and, and they're, they're looking at the, the money that they're making mm -hmm. and how you're trying to affect my family income. I'm trying to provide for my folks and y'all trying to shut us down. So it got uh, several tense situations. I never got to the point that I had a direct threat. I had some threats of people that would want to whoop my butt. But uh, as far as, you know, Lamar and Charles got actually death threats. And uh, I might have had some, but just wasn't aware of it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it was not a, it was not an even feel. In other words, every time I went to one of those meetings, there'd be a few of us and a bunch of loggers. And it, and it, and it felt, I always felt that we were at a disadvantage because I felt like that every time the Forest Service was being favorable to the foresters, to the ones that were cutting mm -hmm. timber. Uh, the white guy that, what's his name? Was his Gordon White? that was a big forester that really took issue with me and uh, we really got into a, uh, it was a very bitter, very bitter kind of dispute area and he got to the point that I was doing a, a series of stories called Bankhead Back Trails. Steve Oden, who had come from the Harsel paper, had moved to the editor of the Moulton paper and he asked me, he says, but says, would you please consider writing me an article every week about the forest? And I said, for certainly. I don't mind it at all. And, of course, uh, as long as Steve was there, we, Bank Hit Back Trails, was published every week. I had some kind of story in the Molten Advertiser about the forest. And the one thing that got me introduced to Lamar Marshall was that story that I wrote about Indian Tomb Hollow. It was August the 22nd, I believe the date was 1990, that I went into Indian Tomb. Of course, I went to Indian Tomb a lot. I mean, I, I, I walked there when I was a little boy. But that particular day, they, had, they were working on that road. They was pouring gravel from one end of that road to the other. They had moved it up from the the old road used to be down next to the, toward the creek, and it kept being flooded. So they moved it up over that little rocky glade. Went across that rocky glade. They were rocking that thing. 
I drove all the way back there where they was at, and I said, uh-oh, something is fixing to happen. I know it's fixing to happen. They wouldn't spend this much money upgrading this road like this. So I wrote that article, August the 22nd, exactly to the day, and I had no idea that it was to the day until I wrote it. I wrote the second article on August the 22nd, I think it was 1991. It was exactly one year to the day by the calendar. They had just started clear-cutting the upper end of Indian Tomb Hollow. So I, I wrote that article. I was sitting there at home, and it was on a Sunday afternoon. And somebody knocked on my door. Bang, 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 bang. I go to the door, and I open the door, and this guy stuck his hand out and says, Lamar Marshall, Butch Walker, how do you know me? Said, I've been staying up with your articles in the bank, kid. Back trails. I said, oh, okay. I come in. So he come in. He said, I want to help. I said, you want to help? What, what do you want to help with? He said, we got to stop this. I said, how can we do it? So we we had a little uh, brain session there, brainstorming session. And he said, I can do a magazine. He said, we can do a magazine. I said, well, I might know somebody can get us some paper. And I said, I tell you what, Lamar, I'll pay for the first year of the box. So I come down here to the to the post office. I paid for a year's rental on, I can't remember, 117 or 114 P.O. box. 117. 117, yep. yeah. So I paid for a year rental for that the first, for the first year. And uh, I, I go down to, at that time, Mr. Gilbreth had become principal of Mount Hope. He wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't my teacher anymore. He was the principal of the school. I said, Mr. Gilbreth, I need some help. He said, what do you need? I said, I need some 11 by 17 paper. He said, oh, I got all kind of champion paper back here. I says, how many cases do you need? I said, give me about three or four. So I took international champion paper, loaded up, brought to Lamar, the first bank head monitor was produced on champion paper. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and it come from, as a free gift from champion paper to the school system. And he said, we don't have much use for this 11 by 17 paper. You can have all of it you want. So we had a supply of paper. Lamar was the type of person that uh, he, could, he could hang in there with the most adversarial person and look him in the eye and speak as calm as I'm, or calmer than I'm speaking right now, and not get really frustrated. With me, I would have been wanting to scrap with him right then, you know, I, I just couldn't do it. But Lamar was a person to take on the job to confront these people. And then when there was things that come up, like this cultural deal that came up, and I kept telling Lamar, well, at the time, was leaning to, oh, we gotta get, get these environmental things. I said, Lamar, historical things. National Historic Preservation Act, Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act. We got to identify these historic areas. And uh, I kept, and he, he kept wanting to identify the endangered stuff. And, and of course, they go hand in hand. Both of them go hand in hand, don't get me wrong. But the uh, historical stuff are, are non-renewable resources. You know, they're, they're non-renewable, period. Uh, some of these uh, wild plants, you know, they can live and continue, but 
once you destroy a historical place, it's gone forever. It's not going to be there no more. But Lamar and I had the personalities to to click together to form a a, a, a deep friendship, and uh, that's that's how I got to be the chairman of the board of directors for the Bankhead Monitors because I could sit there and say, "Yeah, Lamar, you do that," and he would do it. And, and and I wouldn't have to get in the fight, you know what I mean? He he would take the fight to them and, and, and smile in their faces when he wrote, when he drew James Ramey with that forky tongue. The best, the best cartoon I've ever seen. And I, that, that image of James Ramey and his forky tongue will stick to me to the day I die, I'm telling you. But anyway, that was the first bankhead monitor that come out. But anyway... <clears throat> Did you want me to say something about Julie and Nance? When we started fighting for these cultural places like Kinlock, Union Tomb, mm-hmm. and Hightown Path, uh, of course, the Bankhead Monitor was already organized and everything was going, but we, st- we still had this fight to try to protect these areas. And it was a Hickorilla Apache chief that was supposedly, according to the article, did you ever look up the article? Did I you did. ever find the article? I did. You found it? But anyway, he was a powerful Hickorilla Apache chief. So I I was so fascinated with his picture, and he, he looked like he could look through me in the picture. I mean, it's the way he looked. So I took that picture out, and I put it on my wall in the office over at Oakville, over at the Oakville Indian Mounds Museum. And... Uh, so Carmen Blaylock had a group of students from Calhoun Community College she wanted me to give a talk to. So she brought this, brought this group of students to the Oakville Indian Mounds, and uh, one of them was Julian Nez. Brown, real brown man, short, slim, long black hair, courses, a horse's tail. Uh, and you could look at him and see that he was a full-blood Western Indian. You know, he had the typical look. So I invited them into my office for some reason or another. I don't know why, but there wasn't but a few of the students there. And Julian Ness come in, and I seen him, and he looked at me, and he looked at that picture, and he looked back at me. He said, do you know who that is? I said, yeah, I know who that is. That's James A. Garfield Velarde. He said, that's my great-grandfather. I said, are you kidding me? He said, no. I said, that's my great-grandfather. And uh, I said, wow. I said, I need to talk to you. <laughs> so that's when Julian, I made a point at that time to get to know Julian Ness. I said, I got a, I've got a big favor for you. And it hit me right quick, and I don't know why it hit me. I said, uh, I want you to do me a favor. And I said, let's decide on a day. And real quick, like. So we did set up a day. And the only one that could go with me, I think, was Greg Preston. And everybody else had something to do. So Julian, of course, come. And we got in the vehicle. We all met there at the museum. So the first place we went is we drove up to about where the the marker tree is in Indian Tomb. 
and there's a there's a little I, I used to call it the Indian escalator. It was a little incline. It was a crack about two foot wide between two rocks, and it went up, and you could walk right up on top of the bluff line. And then you turn back, and you're on the highest point of that bluff on the south side, and there's some pine trees, and there's an opening, and there's a little rock jetty pointed out into the middle of Indian Tomb Hollow. I'm talking about in the middle of it. You can look down the hollow and see this end of it, and you can look up the hollow and see all the way up to the waterfalls. You get you got a good visual view of Indian Tomb. So we stopped. I carry him, and we we get up the hill. He wasn't in good shape, but we got up the hill, got up on top of that mountain, got up on the edge of the rock. I said, Julian, this is Indian Tomb Hollow. I want you to bless it for me. And I told him I wanted him to do a blessing for me and bring whatever he needed to do the blessing. So he had his he had his dress on and everything. You know, he was he was he was fit for the occasion. I wish I'd have, man. If you'd have, he had his sash on, and he had his pouch on the side of his sash. He had, he had his Indian dress on. You know, I, I can't describe exactly everything in detail. What he had, kind of traditional mm -hmm. dress for a Hickorilla Apache uh, warrior. And in his pouch on his side, he had a pouch. It was probably, it would probably hold a pint of corn pollen because he'd reach in with his fingers into his pouch and he would pull out corn pollen and it was it was a very I'd say a very sacred to me it was very sacred and to him I think it was very sacred he was speaking in his native language and he started at the east like the Cherokees do and he went in all seven directions and he asked the grandmothers to bless this land, to bless this place. And uh, when he got through, uh, I was we were standing there very reverent. You know, it was it was we was real serious about this. I mean, this was a serious thing. And uh, I asked him. I said, Julian, can you share what what was said? So he told us what he said. In all directions, and it was asking for the spirits of the grandmothers, and 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 I don't know why he called on grandmothers, but that's what he said. But anyway, we did that. We went there's a place on the high town path. We went out on to Kenlock, got up on on Kenlock up there. I I didn't want to. I wanted to. I wanted to look over the place, and so we got on top at Kenlock where we could see the the shelter. And he blessed that, and uh, of course we come back, and nobody knew about it except the three of us. I was the only people that knew about that that blessing that took place that day. But believe it or not, within I guess within a few months, the Forest Service decides to consider these three areas for special places, for traditional cultural places. We went on to ask Julian to do us a do a little necklace for the to make money for the for the project we was working on for the for Bankhead Monitor and for Wild Alabama and then it eventually became Wild South. But anyway, you had one of them. Lamar got number one. We like to have a fight over that though. 
I finally settled for number two because <laughs> I, I I wanted it. Was, they were numbered, and the one mm-hmm. you got was numbered. That's I 12. think we did a hundred of them. That's number twelve. <clears throat> I believe we did a hundred of them. Sold for a hundred dollars a piece. They went back to New Mexico to the Hickorilla Apache Reservation, and that's where he died, I reckon. So he's he's gone mm-hmm. on, but he did something extremely important to me mm-hmm. because you know to me i wanted i wanted something spiritual and sacred to be said about these places and uh i was honored that the guy that i had the picture on my wall in the office of opal museum his great grandson was the one that was honored to do that and you you did look up the information on James A. Mm-hmm. Garfield Velarde yep so that's uh, that's, that's an amazing story valuable and worthwhile and you know if a person can't see that the uh, forest has got deep meaning for a lot of people they're blind they 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 they're not opening their eyes I mm-hmm. mean uh, I've got uh, generations of folks that's buried in that forest and uh, that survived and lived in that forest and my folks lived around that forest uh, for generations and I'm not talking about I'm I'm talking about when you go right down here to this cemetery the old McDonald Cemetery between Highway uh, 24 and Highway 33 Mm -hmm. and you walk out there and you look at Tandy Walker, Dr. Tandy Walker's tombstone, he died in 1851 and then you look in my book, this this one is coming out on Lawrence County, and you'll see the marker for Tandy and William Walker, uh, who are buried close to the Warrior River down at Old Nectar. They were the ones that, that told the Creek people that John Coffey was coming to destroy the town. That's the reason the towns were abandoned when they when Coffee and them got there. They thought they was going to surprise them and and, and kill a bunch of Creek people. But hmm. my folks were the folks that warned them that hey, Indian Tomb, Hollow, and Kenlock are probably the two of the most special places in Bankhead Forest. And you know. It's, it's a miracle to me that we have got the story of the Battle of Indian Tomb Hollow. And it's in that it's in one of the books I did, The Appalachian Indians of the Warrior Mountains. The whole I I've reprinted the whole story that's found in the Alabama archives. And I've had people ask me, it says, is there any truth to this story? And I tell them it follows exactly historical facts. There was conflicts between the creeks and the Chickasaws, and it didn't end until the late 1700s. And this battle supposedly occurred in 1780. It started at Caney Creek in in Colbert County, and and come all the way across to culminated in the in the in the Battle of Indian Tomb Hollow. And uh, Ilakna was a uh, she was a mixed blood. She was uh, she was called Magnolia, but she was. Uh, her mother was French. She, her mother had been taken as a, as a small child when the Chickasaws raided a French vessel. The French used to call the Mississippi River a River A. de Colbert, which uh, 
was named after James Long Cobbert because James Long Cobbert led raids on the Mississippi River. That's how he wound up before he died in uh, 1786 uh, with 150 slaves, 150 black slaves, James Cobbert, James Logan Cobbert owned at that time. So the stories about the French and the Spanish vessels coming up the Mississippi River parallels the story of the Battle of Indian Tomb Hollow with a half French and half Chickasaw maiden by the name of Little Locknaw or Magnolia. The story is historically, chronologically accurate. It's, chron it's uh, historically accurate as far as the creek and the Chickasaw conflicts they had. But Indian Tomb should have been set aside a long time ago by the U.S. Forest Service simply because of the U.S. geologic name on the map. They could read the map and see it was Indian Tomb. Mm -hmm. Kinlock the same way. They ought to have known that Kinlock meant something. And I hate to say it, but uh, the Forest Service, I think, has been aware of the of these rock shelters, the importance of them and the historical importance as far as archaeological and prehistoric history of the forest. I think they're I think they were aware that those were important sites historically. And when they cut Indian Tomb, they cut a section of about six acres above that big rock shelter. And I did an article when I was doing Bankhead Back Trails of my kids standing when they were little kids up to their waist in the trenches that was dug in that, under that shelter. Right there on the, it's, it's, it was a south facing shelter. It faced perfectly to the south, to the kind of little bit to the southeast. In, the, in that south fork of Indian Tomb, as you go up to the waterfalls, it would be on the right. When they opened that thing up, that road went right up, and you could look up and see the shelter. And it was no time after that clear cut that that whole shelter was excavated. Mm -hmm. They knew that was a historical site before they cut around it. They knew it. The whiskey steel shelter that Lamar Marshall and I call the whiskey steel shelter in the, in the North Fork of Indian Tomb. We picked up plenty of pieces of flint, pieces of arrowheads. There's no question about that being an archeological site. And the, there shouldn't even be any consideration of doing a clear cut or a cutting the timber or, a, or bulldozing roads. I, they bulldoze a road right below the big shelter on the South Fork of Indian Tomb. I mean, you, all you had to do was just drive down the road and look right up there and there it was. They put a water barrier there to, after they crossed Glispie Branch, you know, that little spring branch. They put a, uh, they put these earthen barriers there, you know, to keep people from driving on back there. But when we took the picture, that picture that appeared in the molding advertiser, and I still got that picture. I still got that article of me standing there by that stump that's about this big around, talking to the people about the clear cutting of anything. Mm -hmm. That that oak tree was probably 150, 200 years old. The oak tree that's in the museum at Opal, we had a dendrologist or a guy that's supposed to be know what he's talking about come out there and do a line count on that tree. That tree is 235 years old. Wow. 235 years old. 
Alabama is just now celebrating the 200th anniversary. But anyway, Jim Manasco was another person that, that really intrigued me and, and, and uh, that's why I wanted to, when I, when I gathered all his articles from the Daily Mountain Eagle, I got my hands on those copies of those things that he had written. He was, I knew he was writing about them during the wilderness, during the fight for the wilderness. So <clears throat> I go ask him, I said, how about letting me use these and have them, have them put into a book? And I guess that was one of the first, I guess that was one of the first books I, I, I wanted to get printed because there wasn't a lot of history, local history, when I started with the Indian program. When I was in 1986, when I got to be director of Indian education program. So uh, he agreed to that. So I put them together, and that book was called Walking Sipsy. And then I said, man, we don't, I, I got to thinking about it a few years later, and I said, you know, he don't have anything about himself or Miss Ruth or anything about the family and all they've done. So I go back to him again, and I said, Jim, let me co-author this book with you, and let's write about you and what you've done for the forest. And uh, you can see that I held him in high esteem from the first part, from the first half of that book called Hike and Sipsy. He was one of, they were one of my, both of them were my heroes, you know. I, they were fighting for what I believed in. You know, I, I, I said many times, I got a purpose. And my purpose is to protect this forest as the best of my ability. I really, I, I stood on a big oak stump when I was real young. It had just been clear cut. Trees on it now are probably 30 years old. But there's this, I hunted this place off the east side of the Cheatham Road there, just before you get to the tower. They clear cut that place and uh, it, my heart sunk, boy. I, I was, that was some of the prettiest, biggest old white oaks I'd ever seen anywhere. There's a pure stand of them on this ridge, big flat ridge. I'm talking about white oaks this big around. Mm. I went in there the year they cut that and stood on one of them white oaks and I said, I make a promise to myself that I'm going to fight for every oak that I can fight for, that these old growths are as important as anything we've got in this forest. And for them to come in to willfully destroy them like this is a disgrace. And I literally had tears running down my face when I was doing that. I was by myself and I was standing on that stump. But Jim Manasco was one of those people that had the same kind of feelings that I had toward places. He knew that they were special places and he knew that they needed to be protected. And he made the effort. Like I said, the guy spent three days a week. I meant every week during the fight for the wilderness. He took, uh, what well, were William Blunt, wasn't it Postmaster General? He took him all day trip through there. He took all kind of dignitaries. He went to Washington and took the maps. Lamar had copies of the maps here, you know, that they'd used to identify. But Jim and Ruth Manasco were, were my heroes because they were fighting for what I was fighting for. Mary Burks was my hero too because 
you know, when I was still in high school, I joined the Alabama Conservancy just had been organized and she became the first president of the Alabama Conservancy. And so, you know, we were we were aware that we were in a fight to save the forest. When I was 16 years old, I realized I was in that fight. I was involved in that fight. And when I graduated from high school and went to UNA, I was still involved in the fight for the Sipsy Wilderness in, in uh, 1968. And uh, I had one of my professors there and I said, uh, you know, I talked to him and he was, uh, I don't know if he was, a, I think he was a biology professor. But anyway, I got them to go to one of those big meetings. I stood there and hear, heard uh, Robert Mount talk about the herpetology of Bankhead. I heard all these other people talking about the importance of Sipsy Wilderness. Mm-hmm. Uh, Imhoff, Thomas Imhoff. I heard all of them. Went to, I think the meeting was at Auburn University, if I'm not mistaken. I believe that's where the meeting was at uh, for the Alabama Conservancy. I was proud to be a member of the Alabama Conservancy. I was a young, aggressive advocate for protecting what I thought should be protected. Alabama Conservancy. I think they even changed the name of the Alabama Conservancy later, didn't they? They did. It's uh, Alabama Environmental Council. Well, you know, she was a a gung-ho lady, but it was was like Jim Manasco said, it took those little old ladies and their grit to get it done. You know, we could be, so to speak, raising hell with the Forest Service about what they were doing, and we could be aggravated about it, but it was those little old ladies that were just real rigid in what they believed and they wanted to protect something, and they were my heroes. I'm telling you, they were my heroes. Charles Borden is my hero too, because Charles and I stood in the trenches together on that last section. But you know, Lamar, he 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 was a godsend for uh, these cultural places. I mean, he was a little late for the wilderness fight. You know, he really didn't get involved in the wilderness fight, as far as I know, because I didn't know him until. You know, it was either 90 or 91 when I wrote the mm-hmm. article about the Indian tomb destruction. And then uh, he, we started that uh, Bankhead Monitor thing. For setting aside and protecting these cultural places, mm-hmm. Lamar was a godsend. I mean, and, and to stop and to, and to slow up clear cutting, it ain't stopped. I mean, I, I consider that section that they just cut from Brushy Lake all the way to the Mount Olive up the Mount Olive Road to Owl Creek, I consider that clear cut. There's some huge oak trees in there. I've hunted that many, many, many years ago. And they made me sick when I went by there several months ago. And I could see across a half a mile across through there mm-hmm. with it. That's too much. That's too that's too drastic. That's just I'm still overdoing it. I always say you can never trust a bureaucracy because it's not the people, it's the it's the policies that's laid out that dictate what goes on. It's not the people that's actually there trying to do the job, running the program, 
they have to follow the policies. And if they don't follow the policies, they don't have a job and they can't feed their mm-hmm. family. So I can't blame the individual people that are hired to work at the Forest Service office. It's the, it's the policies and it's the rules that are set down that are sometimes really messed up. They started off in Bankhead with exactly the same policies they had in the Western Forests because they built about a dozen fire stations all the way across Bankhead. And the Southeastern Forests don't have crown fires unless it's a pure pine stand. And in the wintertime, they don't have any leaves. They're on the ground. There ain't nothing up there to burn in the tops. Fired up forces came together at that time. Lamar was fired up because they were clear-cutting around his property over there in uh, Beatty Hollow. Mm-hmm. He had just bought that place. And there's uh, there's trying to clear cut that forest up there and he told them they better leave a boundary between him and the line. He didn't want them cut right up to the line. And so uh, he is he was talking about that when he come when we when that first meeting and he said, We can stop him, we can stop him. I said I said, Lamar, I've been butting my head against a rubber stump for many, many years, and we hadn't slowed him down yet. And we didn't slow him down until he come on. Mm-hmm. When he finally come on the scene, you know, on these rare two areas, I think they just speeded up their clear-cutting after, uh, after they had the rare two hearings and all that stuff, and, and they deemed them not eligible for wilderness. You know, that whole Brushy Creek area over there should have been set aside as it was part of that rare too. That Brush Creek drainage was a was a premier section that should have been set aside. Shouldn't have been cut. And they, they just increased their cutting like crazy, clear cutting. And Lamar, I give Lamar the credit for being the force that slowed the clear cutting down to a trickle. The lawsuits, the little lawsuits were filed, even though they were wasn't much, you know, Lamar says you the chairman of the board, we're going to file a lawsuit. I said, yeah, hell yeah, let's go. Let's do it. I was ready to do it, boy. I think the biggest check, though, was like $1,200, wasn't it? <laughs> Just a little old bitty check that they reimbursed us for something. I forgot what it was for, but it was funny. It was funny. But it was a good fight. I, I, we fought a good fight. Yes, I hope, did. I hope there's somebody that comes along and that has the same fire as we had at that time because we we were fired up thanks to cellist craig haltgren for our theme music thanks to farron weeks of the white horse singers for the episode music. Thanks to Janice Barrett of Wild South for her help with this episode. Remember to follow us on Spotify and subscribe to us on Apple Podcast. You can also leave a review. 